Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore the human side of people, products, and services that shape our everyday lives. From airlines to atomic habits, to design thinking, to digital psychiatry, we aim to cover it all. So if you, dear listeners, have any suggestions for guests, topics, or experiences that you think need to be explored, let us know. You can message us at experiencexdesign at gmail.com. Now today we're taking you beyond the prototype. If you ever run a design sprint, or even if you simply sat down at your desk to think through a really cool idea for a product, or a new podcast, or how to improve something in your neighborhood, you started the design process. Now what's cool here is there is a whole varied set of practices centered around design thinking, or a structured way to approach and understand problems that a group of people face, and then work to come up with and test solutions. Now, this method has been modified countless times over the past 20 years, and one of the most popular versions is called the Design Sprint, which compresses the design thinking process into a five-day marathon. Now, the idea behind the sprint is rapid definition, coming up with many solutions, many possible solutions, selecting the best one, and then testing it with real people. It's quick and dirty and designed to help teams or individuals find momentum. So today we're talking with Douglas Ferguson. He's a president of Voltage Control, a design sprint and innovation firm. Now, Douglas is a workshop facilitator and a coach. And one of the major questions our guest helps us think about today is, what do you do after you finish your design sprint? In other words, how do you strategically move beyond the prototype? So just so happens, Douglas put together a ton of wisdom over his storied career and wrote a book about it. This book is called Beyond the Prototype, and it's designed to help companies and teams get from the discovery phase of their sprint into launching something. Now, because this is experienced by design and both your hosts are ethnographers, we, of course, want to get to know the stories of the people who help shape our world. That's the magic of experiences. We set about to design them, but there's always a good mix of serendipity that comes out of just being there and building on the experiences of others around you. So thus taking the time to get to know the stories of the makers and designers of our favorite products and services and tools is kind of like watching the behind the scenes of your favorite movie. So we're super excited to see that Douglas is also a music producer and a musician himself, which actually ended up inspiring the name of his current company. And the name of the company was was based off of, I have a pretty large modular synthesizer in my studio. And whenever I would patch the synthesizer up, I would kind of get lost for, you know, an hours of exploration and really curious about the kind of the ripple effects of, you know, you make one little change here and then the modules all connected and, and it resembles in a lot of ways, you know, how teams work, you know, just systems right. theory kind of stuff. And, you know, it was really interesting to to find out that Brian Eno had discovered cybernetics before he mm. really got into into music, and his his theories around music were developed um, completely around his work and his readings around cybernetics. He was like, "How can I apply this to music?" And whereas I came out about it the other direction, you know, I, I started realizing these patterns when I was working with teams and complexity kind of informed things and then drew the connection back. And then I was watching a documentary about Brian, Eno and they were talking about him <laughs> going the, the opposite direction, which I was, man, that's pretty profound. I don't know if I would have made that leaf just reading it and going, Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. well, this it's always nice when you find out you're like in company with Brian, Eno. Well, that's fair good. enough. Yeah. Except he, he was much more genius about how he got there. 
Well, I mean, you know, there's always someone much more genius, right? But I think we got to take what we can get. Absolutely. I mean, you know, yeah. it's, it's like, well, you know, so-and-so is much more genius than I am, so I'm not worth anything. Well, <laughs> my therapist tells me I should, I should reframe that. I should tell a different story in my head. Yeah. Right. I actually just started playing guitar recently because, you know, middle age. And I, when I'm like listening to records or whatever and trying to play along, I'm like, why don't I sound as good as they do? Then I'm like, oh, that's right, because you're not. <laughs> and you just started. <laughs> and so maybe you should give yourself a little bit of credit. Well, exactly. the funniest thing is like, I would, you know, in the recording studio, I, I would always have musicians, drummers especially, come in, you know, and play some Led Zeppelin and say, I want to sound like that. And it's like, Okay, well, <laughs> that's uh, you gotta. Uh, that's gonna take some some time machine action, and you know, <laughs> right? I know it's like I want to dunk a basketball. Well, that's nice, but right, this right. is a, this is a hand you've been dealt, and this is what you have to do. Mm-hmm. This is what you got. That's you, right. You shoot, shoot three pointers. Don't dunk. But I think I think you know your point about systems thinking and systems you know integration. Yeah, and I don't, I don't, I've been teaching usability classes for a while now, even though I'm not a usability expert or trained in usability. It's just how I ended up there because I do ethnography. But it seems that this idea of moving from the individual to the system, I won't say it's brand new in design, but it seems to be picking up speed mm. um, where people are kind of going less from a individual orientation or, you know, we only need to talk to five people into, oh my God, we got to tie all this stuff together. I mean, has this been your experience in the work that you've been doing that there's been more people asking for this integrative approach to design? You know, I, I personally haven't run into that as much because the, the work we do, the, the kind of, the systems work we do, if you will, is more related to the humans and how they interact and how they make decisions. Right. And then hopefully my, my mission is to get, get the organizational health kind of aligned and humming. And then, then ideally they, they are a good functioning system. It's sort of like leaning on Conway's law, you know, the, the organizational, the, any software, any system you build is is destined to to be a mirror image of the organizational structure. Mm-hmm. So if we if we attack the the way the communication structures, the decision making practices, and how they communicate, how they how they, how they generally work together, then everything else will be an emergent quality. And because I don't I don't like. I don't refer to myself as a consultant because um, I don't want to come in and tell them how to build their software or how to, how to design their things. I just right. want to equip them to, to be better teammates and to, to make better decisions. And we do that through, through workshops and meeting culture exploration. So that's interesting. So, I mean, even this idea then, um, yeah, I'd love to kind of get a bit about your history and your story of how you got into this, right? Because in like working as a as you know CTO space, and then working with voltage control and, and yeah. thinking across you know design sprints with Jake Knapp and stuff. And so, walk us a bit through that that kind of journey, because I think this is a really really great place to to think about. I love this idea of Conway's law. We should I think we should return to this later too. Of, of like, how does we think about this for organizational structure and how does software mirror that? But how how'd you get there? Yeah, so <clears throat> it's uh, it's been a fun fun journey. <laughs> I started off in writing software, and I was working for a company called Cormetrics, and we were building analytics. So if you know if you're familiar with Google Analytics, mm-hmm. um, we were essentially one of the first to do that one by one pixel kind of data collection. Prior to that, it was all ser- server file analysis, which was 
fraught for many reasons. And so this is the first way to you know accurately measure and and tra- and track uh, user behavior. And the thing that I realized was well. Wasn't just me realizing it, but we basically had a competitor come in and kind of eat us for lunch and steal all our customers away because we were so infatuated with the technology and these these brilliant uh, things that we had created and these advanced tools for understanding shopping cart behavior. And you know, when you when you list it out, the functionality and the capabilities, hands down, anyone in the industry would say CoreMetrics was the best. But but along came Omniter and created a user experience. We didn't even call it user experience back then, but delivered better UI. <laughs> and essentially, you know, in, in some regards, it was just prettier. Um, it made more sense. It was easier to to understand that the first time user experience was was much more pleasant. And and also they were undercutting us because you know they were you know a lot of times people talk about the first mover advantage, but man. Um, it can be helpful if someone plows the way for you, <laughs> you know. <laughs> right, right, right. And you come in without all the debt and without all the the just the extra mass. And especially back in those days, because you know we had servers in the in, in the back room that we had special AC piped into, and you know the storage devices were very intelligent and had their own operating systems. Nowadays, you know, with with Clustering of hardware and using Google's blazed the pathway for using commodity storage versus you know this programmable stuff and you know ability to slice up servers and things really drove down costs. So you got the confluence of like of those things and and uh, anyway I'm getting off track, but the the point is early on I I was I got taught that lesson that the mm-hmm. That technology for technology's sake is going to take us is, is no good for anyone, and right. and it started to develop this understanding that there's this three legged stool of you know technology, market, and and design. And so if you if you look at it like generally when you're hiring hiring product managers, there's there's the, an imbalance on the team, and and that's because nobody is equally. Um, excellent at all three. Generally, someone uh, each person is going to have one sweet spot, and so when you're balancing a team, it's good to to balance across all three. And and the the if, the examples are you know Google, Apple, maybe P and G, right? Whereas like you know P and G, any of these kind of consumer packaged good companies are really market focused. They're really just kind of right. getting into these deep <laughs> needs and trends. And you know who, who knew we needed a, a razor, or a shave, shaving razor, for, with like ten blades in it or whatever. Right? And and so you know, as I started to formulate some of these ideas, I was also really fascinated with process and how we bring teams together to function more efficiently. Whether that be extreme programming, agile, lean, you know, there's always a new flavor and new ideas developing every five or so years and. Tracking those things and experimenting a ton, I was you know moving from individual contributor on the software development side to act to to leader within within the company, and I typically yeah. held a title of CTO where I was managing engineers, QA, product, etc. So the so the entire product organization and. 
through that work, found the design sprint and had my team running them. I was corresponding with Jake, you know, all over the internet, just kind of pen pal style. And he, once Google Ventures invested, he actually came and ran one with us. So I think it was something like sprint number eight for us or something. Um, depending on how you count them, because we had experimented with little tiny versions, full versions, et cetera. And it was really fascinating to me watching some of the things he did, the way he worked with the room. And it just kind of clicked for me that there, there was maybe more to this facilitation stuff than I once realized. And that led me on a journey to start looking at um, all these other different modalities, especially once I started to uh, go out on my own as a quote-unquote fractional CTO and got a lot of requests for the design sprint stuff because A, people now in their heads knew I was available because I was now you know, a free agent. And just based on the popularity of those requests and people being curious about my experiences with Jake, started doing a few of them and then that led to you know other facilitators saying, well, that's interesting stuff. This is what I do. And um, right, when I right. realized that there were all these silos, right. I started to want to stitch them together because the architecture people weren't talking to the design thinking people. And then the design sprint community is almost like a separate pocket from the design thinking people, although there's a little bit more cross-pollination there. And then you've got the liberating structures people and the thinking wrong people. <laughs> right. <laughs> And I realized it's really crazy because like a lot of these concepts are either they're informed by some of the, some earlier groundbreaking work, or they they're just pra- smart practitioners that arrived at the same conclusions. Mm-hmm. And that's really fascinating to me because if you start to stitch together this community and allow them to talk about what works and what doesn't work and some of the nuances, then we can all level up together. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's kind of that's kind of the whole arc of the journey. I know it's a long winded story, but. Nah, I mean, I think that there needs to be the detail because people often wonder, like, you know, we're here without necessarily knowing how we got here. One of the one of the things I always enjoyed was reading information systems journals, and they'll reference a concept like culture and then provide a citation from like 1998. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, you know, the concept actually goes back further than that. Maybe we should know about what happened back then yeah. and how we got here, yeah. because I think often that that gap of knowledge makes people feel like they're reinventing something that actually has a lineage that needs to be understood because there's a richness in that movement to where we are. Because, like you said, smart people figured out that where we were before wasn't complete in terms of its approach, and we needed something else to more fully inform what we were trying to do. So I think we need that kind of that background to really understand design, you know, design as a movement, not as a moment. If you yes, will. absolutely. And you know, it's talking about moments. I was just speaking with someone the other day and really fascinated by this situation we're in right now and how it might pose unique opportunity for researchers. And so right. I haven't specifically spoken with an anthropologist on this, so now I'm curious. Um, <laughs> I was just told that, well, and it makes total sense, but I'm, I'm thinking about completely different things at this point. And they, were, they, they told me that school shootings, or, or there have been no school shootings in, in the, it was the first month of no school shootings right. for like, I don't know, it was something staggering, like over 10 years. Right. And it got me to thinking, wow, does this, this, does this pose an opportunity for um, researchers to look at like 
has the violence stopped or has it uh, morphed? Is, is it happening in different places now? And how are those places similar to the places where, where, you know, to schools? And does it give us a glimpse into new uh, understanding that we can maybe adapt further studies? I actually just recorded a video on this because I'm teaching a class in criminology. <laughs> okay, awesome. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So, uh, so I know you asked for anthropologist's opinion, but I'll, I'll jump at him here for a second. I think Sister part of it is, is, a, is a simple uh, simple explanation that schools aren't in session. Sure, yes. And, you know, while I think I, I, that's both, you know, simple and depressing at the same time, because then it asks the next question, well, once schools get back in session, does that mean there'll be school shootings again? And, you know, are, to what extent are we really fundamentally changing the culture or are we just pausing it because the structural conditions are such that it, it inhibits us from doing what we normally would do anyway? Mm. Sure. That part, that part makes sense to me. The, the part I'm curious about is like, so in this kind of forced um, reduction or this artificial reduction, does that give us an ability to, to understand why it happens? Because we can right. look at how where the behavior moved to, or or when it when when it resumes, does it change? Are there more of them? <laughs> because like that mm-hmm. that thing pent up, I don't, or is there is there less because they had a break from it, and then something I don't know. It's like it'll be interesting to see if because there was no way that I guess my point is there's no way a researcher could have said, okay, everyone, you're gonna have to stop what you're doing. And hit right, pause button right. for a while because I need to like have a reset for my study. I, I mean, could they could researchers use this their advantage to somehow understand look at look at how the behavior shifting? I don't. I'm fascinated by that. I mean, cer- I certainly, that, yeah. Looking at behavior change over time, we could certainly do that. But I think it's interesting too because, like, to, to your question, you know, can we predict a school shooting? Is kind of the question there too, right? And like, yeah. does does any research indicate towards that? And like. You know, a lot of time in social sciences, sociology, and anthropology, you know, we we don't tend to predict the future, as it were, but we can like identify trajectories, right, and see if there's like certain conditions that are setting something yes. about. So that's that's why this the systems perspective is so interesting, you know, because it's like we might see structural inequalities and social inequality and access to guns, access to schools, you know, right, movements of people and stuff. And so, right, when we restrict one of those variables, in this case, going to school, do we see like the violence move elsewhere? Do we see it? Go away, right? And it is a really interesting set of questions of like what trajectories are changing because school uh, is right. out right now, you know. Um, and I would add yeah. to that point. This is where I think that schools should do more teaching of causal modeling, quite frankly, hmm. because if you think about all the variables, and this goes back to the systems thinking and organizations and implementation, um, and how to get things going, what factors inhibit that. You know, right now there's been a huge surge in gun purchases, right? I mean, so that's right. not good. Where there's going to be a huge surge, there's a huge surge in unemployment and probably an economic crash. Well, that definitely isn't good for for crime. People are not in school. Well, that's both good for school shootings because you're not in school to shoot, but it also kids aren't in school with regulated time, but they do have access possibly to guns at home. Okay, well that's a problem. And so then thinking about how all these things link together. Right. And, and what are the strongest relationships and the weakest relationships really does become like this larger, you know, question of how do we, what are the variables in this design ecosystem? And how do we then interrupt those, those pathways that lead to school shootings or any kind of shootings so that they don't happen? So I, I'm, I'm just like, you know, I, I'm not optimistic by nature, which is redundant because I'm a sociologist. 
and then it kind of comes with the territory. <laughs> but I do think that, you know, we, as we're seeing right now with this larger pendulum swing with these AstroTurf protests where people are protesting, you know, being in quarantine. Well, that was, you know, in hindsight, that's pretty predictable because that's what, that's what has been happening, right? Mm. Um, but I think that's also part of this, like the zeitgeist where people feel like expertise is no longer relevant in their lives, that anybody, anybody's opinion is equals anybody else. Oh, by the way, there's a deep state conspiracy that's actually operating underneath, which is making all of this, you know, an illusion. At, you know, anyway, perception is stronger than reality. So therefore, unfortunately, you're going to have these outbreaks of, of nonsense because humans are predictably unpredictable. <laughs> And they're predictably irrational, right? Exactly right. <laughs> so I think, Douglas, I mean, one question I had for you, this is actually a really, really fascinating line of questioning. And so, in tagging on what Gary said too, this idea that there is kind of this, you know, sort of pushing down of expertise, uh, of, of certain kinds of expertise in terms of, of people leading the charge, as it were, and like helping share public information or, or best practices, we might say, of maybe even being human. But, you know, a lot of the, in the, in the design world, we're, we're Obviously, working mostly within organizations, so there's there's a different you know hierarchy and governance structure, obviously, and and a smaller. It's like not as big as quote society. However, the idea of like the facilitator has really kind of come out as one of these you know models of thinkers and and a form of expertise in itself, right? Of how do we help organizations align their thinking and how do we get teams to work together? And I, I so I'm just kind of wondering: is there some weird mix of, of bringing facilitation? out into wider societal thinking, you know, and like, what, what is it about the facilitator that you found that like works so well that, cause you said this kind of a model that you found your way into through systems thinking and, and through like the design lens realizing, oh, actually like this is a skill that's super important to help people guide their thinking, right? And that's even what beyond the prototype your, your book is kind of framing all about is like, how do we keep that going, right? How do we facilitate forward um, as it were beyond the sprint itself? And so I don't know, so I'm thinking of two parallel questions here. One of how, how does the idea of facilitator resonate with you in this bigger conversation about society we're talking about, but then also we can, we can dig into like organizational levels too. Are organizations just microcosms of society or are they much more specific, much more regimented and facilitator wouldn't work the same way out in the, in the, in the wider world? You know, I, I think that there's there's a lot to unpack there. This notion of facilitators in broader society absolutely resonates with me. And, and there's a when you look at the the framework for well, there's some frameworks that fit in in those domains. Maybe more so because that's where they evolved. You don't see design thinking applied so much in the outside world. Although there are there are buckets of it, um, or, or I would say there are there are examples out there. For instance, I'm seeing lots of HR professionals starting to to attend design thinking conferences, which means that like right. instead of the lens being pointed outward to customers, it's being pointed inward, which I think is really fantastic. And I've been re- referring to it as employee experience. And right. and then you've got then you've got stuff like liberating structures, which is typically found in healthcare and and social justice type of work. So this kind of societal change work is definitely done with inside of in those frameworks in that world. You find it um, the art of gathering those communities. Unconference.net's an example of mm. a more kind of open and uh, free exploration of ideas. You typically find the people that are in that work are typically using tools that are more loose in their control structures. And mm. you know, I titled my conference "Control the Room," and I've gotten a little bit of backlash from some of those more loose folks because they hear it and they're like, "Well, it's not about control." And my mm. point is like, <laughs> if you're showing up 
you're exhibiting some form of control. Right. Yeah. Now, whether it's whether now, if you hear the word control and immediately think tight control, then that's just a semantic conversation. Mm-hmm. But but I think there's a difference between loose and tight, and 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 that that demarks a difference between the, these these frameworks that are used. And and so when I look at or think about the the broader societal stuff, it's it's very fascinating. I think that the the, the one challenge is for a facilitator to be be powerful or be effective. I'd say that there has to be this notion of relinquishing of of control for the facilitator. So the facilitator has to be considered. There has to be some order, right? Where where the the group at large that has this shared goal, this shared the shared value, this this outcome they're seeking, has said that I believe this facilitator can help us. Mm. And if that condition, you know, it's just like you think about um, emergent or uh, complex adaptive systems and, and, and how reactions happen, you have the initial conditions have to be set. Yeah. And so that, I believe that's one of the initial conditions. And if that, that is true, if they have faith that they have belief that this person can bring them together and get them where they need to go, or maybe this group, maybe it's not just one person, maybe it's a constellation of facilitators and that we're going to be, we're going to be here as your guides. And, and there has to be a lot of trust there. And if that's there, then magical things can happen with really large groups, but you have to use Mm. the right tools and you have to come with the right intent and the shared um, the shared values have to be there. A good friend of mine, Greg Sattel, just uh, released a new book within the last year called Cascades. And it's his, his first book was Mapping Innovation, if you've ever seen that one. Yeah, I have that book, actually. Yeah. I've read it. So Cascades is really cool because basically he's saying that you know social movements... Sorry, have you read Cascades or, or Mapping Innovation? No, I've read Mapping Innovations. Cool, yeah. So Cascades is the book he really wanted to write. And um, the publisher was like, "Well, that or never never sell." So he convinced. So then he, <laughs> he they, they were like, "Well, this innovation one will will sell." And so once he became a published author, then he was able to do the book he really wanted to do. He was he was in the Ukraine during the the Orange Revolution, and he watched uh-huh. that just go. His, he watched his wife, which I think is his girlfriend at the time, go from you know just being a, his 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 like girlfriend to being an activist, and it was almost like a, a switch flipped huh. like he, and, and like he he didn't hear her complaining or like saying i'm thinking about doing this it was just like i'm going and she was walking out the door with a handkerchief and he was like what how did that just happen <laughs> yeah and so he got really fascinated by this and as a journalist you know he was equipped to do the research and he, he looked into it and he said wow there's there's some, there's a there's some defining differences between social movements that work and ones that don't and and, and you can apply these concepts to change with inside companies Mm. And that that really deeply resonates with me. And as a practitioner, I knew I, I, everything he said. I knew to be true. And it was, you know, when you read these things that give you language and stories for stuff that you noticed, that's that's pretty amazing, you know. And so I, so it, it, it echoes some of the stuff I was trying to say around these shared values. Because if we're gonna if we're gonna make some change, we we have to all be aligned on, you know trying to achieve the same outcome or else you know there's there's little little odds that we're gonna we're gonna get to where we need to go and in a way you know you can also look at negotiation science because Mm. you know you know whether it's chris voss or whatever camp you believe in the (laughs) you know you have to think about these two parties uh, may have different views on the subject but ultimately 
if if we're gonna if we're gonna make a road forward, we have to understand where we where we align and where we agree. And to me, that's really the job of, of a, a great facilitator. Asks really really great questions. They they keep their own opinions at bay. They stay neutral, and um, they help us get to the desired outcome. Hmm. I really do appreciate the. I teach a course on employee experience, actually. And this element of social movements, creating a social movement in an organization, I think, you know, what separates, we've talked about this in the past on past shows, what separates, you know, user experience per se from customer experience, employee experience, patient experience. I teach it, I work in a university, student experience, is this cultural change, right? It's not just about improving functionality and usability. It's we need to change your organization, have a different purpose, a different outlook, a different mission. And that's, and that's the trick, right? I mean, that's, easier said than done, especially when you're wading into as an outsider, all of the politics, all of the history, you might be the third person they've brought in to try to do a thing. And everyone's burned out of coming to these sessions with post-it notes and we're busy anyway. And who is this guy? And now we got to sit here and do these, you know, play these games and whatever. And I, I'm, maybe I'm talking about this too much because I'm speaking from personal experience now of being in those rooms, sitting there, you know, how do you then as a facilitator get those people uh, on, on board with this kind of level setting of why are we all here? And by the way, as from a community organizing perspective, you might not be here for the same exact reasons, but at a certain level, we can align the reasons you are here and what you do want in finding that point of connection where we can all agree. We might disagree on some, some specifics, but the larger point is something we can all agree on. Yeah, I think there's 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 a couple things there. One is you have to ask, and you have to um, reserve time and space for that conversation to happen. And so when we when we look at when we look at this kind of work, generally I like to start there. It's a great way to open to get deeply into purpose. There's there's an amazing liberating structure called Nine Whys. Um, not to be confused with five whys, <laughs> but you can, I mean, it's four more of these things, you know, you're drilling deeper and deeper into what really drives you intrinsically. And, and if we start there and we give everyone a voice and we listen and we provide mechanisms to, for, for that voice to percolate up to the top and to find where, do some sifting and sorting in ways that are efficient and can, you can manage across large groups. In fact, um, Daniel Stillman and I did a workshop last week on large virtual meetings and we've, we've been developing this concept we call information trees. And when you're dealing with really large groups, you have to think about how you traverse the tree, much like you would in, 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 from a computer science standpoint. Right. So, do we do we randomly test leaf nodes? Do we do an exhaustive search through the tree? There's there's any interesting ways to to kind of manage the group in a way that everyone still feels heard, and the the ideas have all kind of bubbled up and and, and moved around. And so, I think one mistake a lot of folks make. So, I can give you the counter example. That people make the mistake of just assuming that we're all aligned. That of course, right. of course, we want to adopt agile. So then we come in with this big presentation about <laughs> like the agile manifesto is da 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 da. So awesome, right. blah blah blah. But we never gave anyone an opportunity to talk about their hopes and their fears and why they think this thing won't work. Like you need to understand your opposition just as well as you understand 
your the you know your advocates and the people that are already on board with you. And the, the thing is, is not to get drunk on your your own excitement and your own desires and and just kind of bulldoze the stuff through. We have to make sure that we understand what every, what's in it for everyone. And if we can if right. we can understand all those things and support everybody, then then we're going to have a much more resilient program. Another mistake people so you know don't make that assumption and, and intentionally program in time to explore that as and it's a great way to open because then if we really understand our goal and our shared vision, I mean you know you look at the design sprint, it starts off with the goal. And I think that that's an area as a facilitator that I've I've tweaked to, to to the point where you know it's interesting. A lot of people will have have published variations and risks on the design sprint. It's like, oh, here's this four day version, here's this three day version, or I don't do this, or I do that. And I, what I'm really focused on is the nuance of each component because I feel like that the cadence and the arc is really well designed. And but within the within the each activity, I think there's opportunities to optimize and specifically tailor for different industries and different 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 types of groups. And the goal specifically is one that I think you know. And in, in the book, it's just like have this discussion about the goal. And and I've found that you know playing with some different techniques to really unlock those shared values can really set the stage for how the, the team works together for the rest of the week. And that applies to any kind of gathering. Do you find that in terms of setting up the idea of goals and visions as kind of an initial step? Now you're thinking about this, this, this can happen in both the initial phrase of the design sprint itself, but then also it seems like this is, this is a great thing to kind of revisit it right, right after you finish the sprint as you're kind of going into the beyond the prototype phase, if we can call it that, I guess. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's yeah. something to constantly double stitch on because the, the thing is, is we so... I mean, it's, think about acronyms, right? Or, or any any words, are, or anytime we shorten some some concept down, we do it for efficiency so that we can quickly communicate bigger concepts. But but whenever we th- compress our meaning, we there's opportunity for nuance to be lost. Right. And and when that and when there's two things that happen with that, right? We could be using the same word but meaning different th- two different things, or we could be using two different words to to mean the same thing. Mm-hmm. And and when that happens, you know, that's when teams are getting malaligned and they don't realize it because they're not having open arguments, but there's this like underbelly or fabric of of disorder. And that can be very, very dangerous because you don't even realize it's happening. I worked with a team back in November and they were on the surface like performing well, hyper aligned. But when we got in there, they were basically were repeating the project brief. And mm-hmm. the thing I noticed is they were using, there's a word and this word is a very cornerstone of the brand. <laughs> And it became clear to me what I what I was able to to extract was that they didn't understand they had different thoughts around what that word meant for this project. Mm-hmm. And so, like for instance, it wasn't GE, but let's let's say their their slogan is "We bring good things to life," right? Well, what if what if they all disagreed on what life meant, right? That that's, right, yeah. that's problematic. <laughs> <laughs> or good things, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so so that's the kind of stuff that if you a facilitator comes in, 
starts to see some of these things without telling them what life or good things mean, just slows things down and gives everyone permission to have that conversation. That's where the, the real magic can happen. And I so guess that, it's like really no different than your production work, right? I mean, because you, you, you worked as a, you know, looking at your LinkedIn bio, you worked as a producer, did me, you know, music production work. And is it that different of hearing that nuance, seeing like what little changes might happen, bringing everyone together to orchestrate? And then, you know, all the different tracks, you have to meld them together to create a final thing that blends. Is, I mean, is, are the skills that distinct music production versus design sprint? You know, I think that, you know, a lot of the lessons I learned there are definitely applied. You know, it's just like any experiences you have, you, you bring things to bear. And I, I do think that there's, there's a bit of a symphony that you're, you're conducting. Right. In fact, we, we, we wrote an article not that long ago drawing parallels between a, a conductor and a facilitator. And, you know, I, I, I personally love the electrical metaphor. <laughs> you know, it's like whether you're a conductor that's like driving a, a, a steam engine or in front of right. an orchestra or, or the actual um, component within an electrical device that's um, conducting the electricity. You know, it's the same a core definition, the, the same roots of, of the word, if you will, that we are an enabling and we're extracting the the essence of, of what's happening, and and I think that a, a good music producer, you know, and I learned this this from Steve Albini, this notion that you should be documenting and and mm. not influencing what's happening, but taking a, a, a an accurate portrait. Now, if you if if you now there are things that you might do to embellish and make it sound slightly different from from what's live but I, I tried to be clear and transparent with um, with my work so that that I was there extracting uh, what what that band was was intending to, to do and and the sounds they wanted to create and so I think it is very similar to going into teams that you know they have a goal they have objective I'm not there to tell them what they should do or why they need to do it. I'm just there to help them achieve those things that they, they, they so deeply want. Hmm. So no more cowbell, right? Right. What you guys need, need more cowbell. <laughs> always, always, always need more cowbell. Need more, always need more cowbell. And so I guess some, some bands, some artists are temperamental and, and some are going to be easy to work with like organizations. I was listening to another podcast this weekend with a Austin native, Kathy Valentine from the Go-Go's. Awesome. And, um, she was talking about this element of it, like being in the studio, trying to arrive at a sound, working together, bringing the parts. And sometimes it's just magical. And sometimes, you know, the org what worked in the past is out of step with the present. And you need to either move and change with that moment in music or else you're going to be, you know, left behind. And also, you know what? If you're playing stuff that matters to you, it might not be about how many records you're selling or how many tour dates you have, but are you finding meaning in the work? And I, I guess, again, the, the connection would be the same, that if all you're doing is being driven by profit and growth, well, is that really the purpose of what you're trying to do as an organization? Or is it you, can you be a smaller organization and accomplish meaningful things without worrying about getting bigger for bigger sake? Yeah, that's amazing. You know, I've as a startup advisor and mentor, I run into that often. You know, a founder has an amazing idea, 
but they're not pursuing the amazing idea because quote it doesn't scale. And, mm. and I don't I don't know what really is the I mean I I would assume it's ego, but it just surprises me that someone has stumbled upon something so amazing that they could you know potentially with a small team you know pocket a couple million or maybe a million a year or something and uh, and that's not good enough you know it's right. if, if i don't if i don't make the you know if i'm not if i can't ring the bell <laughs> the uh, stock exchange then right. then this is not worth worth any of it and, and it's man it's like wow you really <laughs> and and the fascinating thing is if you do the if you do the passion project you do the lifestyle business, which is like nothing to shake a stick at. I mean, gosh, like, uh, you know, so many people would be so, so grateful to be in that situation, right? And if you did that and really pursued that, what, what surfaces that you're not even considering right now? Because in, in that work, you expose some new novel thing. And so I, I'm just a, I'm a firm believer in, in following your passion and, and doubling down on what works rather than trying right. to like have some, some, notion of what the future should be and trying to force that to happen. How might we then think about the notion of control in this case, to come back to your conference title, control the room here, because I, I thought it was interesting how you said that certain people read that differently, right? Like, what, what does it mean by control? So I, I love this idea too, of, of especially in the startup space, right? You know, most startups fail, but again, what does failure mean in this case? And then also, what does it mean to have a sense of like, you're trying to control the future, but also just come up with a passion project, you know, that may not scale. And also, I, I'm really, I, I, I think this is super compelling too, because you can talking to a bunch of founders and, and folks with ideas, right? You know, you, you do hear this notion of you want to have some sense of like becoming the next, you know, Google, or and that may be a little too big, but you know, but it's the idea of like wanting to be able to scale as one of the key metrics of having a kind of success, and so it it, it does change the way of what does it mean they. The notion of control, I think, in this space too. What are, what are founders trying to control? Now, so I'm just in between the idea of like both control and, and scale. Also, just like what are people trying to get at by scaling versus just following their passions? And is, is yeah. there a way to think about that with control to help us? You know? Yeah, I mean, self control comes to mind. <laughs> the but I don't know. I'd have to probably had to sit down and interview some folks around that intent because usually when I'm I'm in that conversation. I'm I'm really focused on not necessarily what drove them to that conclusion, but helping unpack it a bit for them to make sure that they're thinking about alternatives and that, is that the right path forward. So I can't really say with um, with um, confidence exactly what what the drivers are, but just thinking about the patterns, I would hazard to guess that it's really about ego and, and, and about, mm. you know, notoriety, you know, like, Oh, I want to be famous or I want to be known for this. Or, you know, there are some people that are driven by this notion of having something bigger and more complex because mm. it's a challenge. Like, can I, can I, can I overcome that? And, and also I think that some disregard the lifestyle business because they think it's like, like less, less important work or, or, you know, they've achieved less or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I, I, for whatever reason, they've set the goal and they're very, they tend to be very fixed on it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I think that's a lot of times that tenacity, that grit, that, that laser focus is what, it's what's served them well and allowed right. them to succeed. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is like, and, and that does not, that can work in a simple domain and a complicated domain, but in a complex domain, 
you had to be darn lucky to like have set those sites exactly right. And so being able to twist and turn and adapt is really what it's about in this in this kind of VUCA world that we're, we live in now. Mm. There's a really nice book by David Epstein called Range. I don't know if you've seen it. And it kind of speaks to this, right? It's like this 10,000 hours model of practice, you know, is really nice if all you're going to do is like play Tchaikovsky um, within a very controlled environment. But if you want to sit down with a bunch of people playing jazz, it's not going to help very much. You have to kind of draw on an extensive range of experiences and um, knowledge sets in order to you know, adapt to how things are changing. And just, you know, on a, on a different kind of like side note, me, me venting and Adam and I had this conversation, one of the major drawbacks of academics is that we're taught to hyper-focus in a very narrow range of work, which then really hurts in terms of taking foundational work and then applying it more broadly. And so I guess one of the things I wonder about with your work is, and in your role of social broker, of connecting pieces, of getting people in silos and organizations in very narrow ranges to connect and see how all those dots can be integrated in unique and unthought of ways. So have you ever seen there, this? Uh, the listeners can't see this, but there's a really incredible <laughs> blog post out there that talks about, has these concentric <laughs> circles. And yeah. there's a little dot in the center and says, this is what you learned in kindergarten. And this is how much you, and then the next ring is, well, this is what you know coming out of uh, high school and then college. And then a master's degree kind of fills shades in the uh, part of the next layer, but you don't get all of right. it. And then the final thing is a little dent on the, on the outer ring. And it says, once you get your PhD, you've made a dent in, in the available knowable knowledge in the world. You've added a little bit to it. And then the next screen is a zoom in of that dent and says, now this is your percep, this is your perception of the world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if, if that wasn't so true, it would hurt less. Right. But yeah, that's actually very accurate. <laughs> well, that's, that's just, you know, there's this beautiful flip side of that called onlyness. And onlyness is the study of the, this notion that only you, David, um, sorry, only you, Gary, have had the experiences you've had. And only right. you, Adam, have had the, had the experiences you've had. And that's created a, a unique person um, with a set of unique um, experiences. And you're going to bring a totally different lens to a situation. And mm. that's exactly why diversity matters. Because if right. we bring together lots of percept perspectives, then we can we can excel beyond you know what we'd otherwise receive, get or the, the you know the, the outputs we'd be able to generate with just ourselves. So I think that's really beautiful, and it led me to to further think about this notion of observational diversity. And often when we're doing ethnography or user research, we'll send one researcher in to do the research, and and, I, and I've really been fascinated by this this phenomenon out of the design sprint where you've got a cross-functional team listening to the interviews, not just reading a report right. that someone else put together. And and so in a lot of the retrospectives and debriefs, the, 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 the things that different people pick up on that then trigger other stuff for other people in the room. So that, that conversation is powerful. And I think we should see, I would love to see more of that out, even just outside of the design sprint. And that's the that's the concept that I was um, putting forth in the kind of cultivate the culture chapter, which is like, can mm -hmm. we do these things outside of the confines of the design sprint? 
Yeah, actually, that was the chapter that jumped out to me as a cultural anthropologist <laughs> the most was this idea of, of not just because it was the word culture, but it was, it was the idea of how do you cultivate something beyond the, the, you know, the place where it is born, as it were. And I think that that is a really fascinating question, too, because in this case, like the design sprint and then even like the beyond the prototype, you know, journey, as it were, you know, work best at the end of the day if they can be then adopted and brought into the bring the mindset out further, you know, beyond just the actual practice, the, the week itself or, or whatever the time frame is for kind of charting the course afterwards. And I guess, have you found that, I mean, I'm guessing one of the answers is like when cross-functional teams, you know, pick up on this and they, and different kinds of people are, are helping promote in this case, the design sprint, but have you found there's certain instances or scenarios in which that culture gets adopted more, more readily? Hmm. Yeah, there, there's one. There's one kind of situation where it's just it, it takes off like wildfire, and that that's the situation where the team's been reading all the blogs. Mm-hmm. They they know all the things, but they just haven't started a practice, mm-hmm. and or maybe they've tried to, and they've just you know for whatever reason it hasn't taken hold. And along comes a design sprint. And now they've kind of gotten the training wheels. It's sort of like having that bicycle and like trying to get on it and just kind of falling off of it and yeah. like uh, getting a little discouraged and going, well, I don't, I'm not sure. And then, you know, and then you get the training wheels and you get, you get to experience the benefits and how much fun it is to have the wind hitting your face. And you're like, I, I'm going to stick to this and like figure this out. Right. And, and also there's this interesting element where the, the this phenomenon around if once leadership, like, says devotes and you know attention and resources to this because you know they might be hiring an outside agency like like voltage control to come in and facilitate they might be they might be just reserving internal resources to facilitate but they're certainly devoting five days of the entire team that's five days of seven people that is a commitment right mm-hmm. and that that's a right. signal to the team that we care about this stuff and we want to do it and so then also when you ha- when you come out with this prototype and the story around around what happened and th- that's why i believe the the retrospective the recap the the photo album that tells that narrative around what happened is so critical because then that starts to to spread this message message throughout the organization and so basically you, it starts this little this flywheel that begins to kind of spin up and there's momentum around that and and so you can really can see that the cultural kind of shift with, within a company, but it really it really helps if if they're already kind of on that on that edge of that knowing doing gap where they're like know all the things but they're not quite doing it. And right. once they experience it, and then once they've got some stories to tell, because having that internal case study super super powerful because it's one thing mm. to say oh yeah. Blue Bottle Coffee did this and that, and there's this awesome like uh, thing that Slack did, and it's in the book, and blah blah blah. Well, once you tell them that you know our HR um, department like reduced the cost of of application you know review process by fifty percent, and we're like ten x faster or whatever it is. Once you can talk about those internal wins, you can. You can you can kind of own it and, and you can replicate it a lot more easily and so those are the ones I see that are the you know the easiest um, to adopt just not immediately go back to 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 business as usual and then I'll say even if the conditions aren't perfect I think the the next best thing is to follow the steps and beyond the prototype hmm. 
Yeah, that, that, that's a fair point, right? So, I mean, actually, to, to jump at that too, the other another chapter that I think resonates really well with that, the idea is of sharing your story, right? And what does it mean to tell the story of of the sprint you did? And so for me, I think, I think like the idea of stories and culture goes so well together. And there's an anthropologist who has the wonderful name of Michael Jackson, who's, who's older than the other Michael Jackson. And so, and so anthropologist Michael Jackson has this, this wonderful idea that stories are the blood vessels of culture, mm. right? And it's what makes the, hmm. makes the cells move through. I mean, it's what makes you live, right? And so I think having those stories and, and like, so the idea of the internal case study is one of the, is a, is a great Great example. I know this for me personally too. Once I was able to begin doing case study work in design, then I suddenly was like, oh, I get now a little bit more how to talk about this. And now I I further, further can then think about anthropology and how do I plug this into design and put these pieces together. And it's it's through doing, right? And so it's like you get these pieces and then like you get some knowledge and then you start doing them. You get those stories and then suddenly there's there's what we might call a culture starts to emerge where there's a certain way the blood flows. There's a certain way that we tell the stories, right? And that gives shape, right? as it were, to, to the body, you know, the organizational body, I guess, that becomes the culture, you know? So I think it's, it's really interesting to think about that too. And like, again, so, so I, um, just double points for, yes, beyond the prototype in terms of linking together these ideas of stories and culture, I, you know, they reinforce each other, I think. Absolutely. And I was just recently speaking with a, a podcast host who has a new podcast called Untold Stories of Innovation. And cool. We were we were having fun unpacking the the story arc of the design sprint itself because so <laughs> so then so much so that we it, it was it was a really beautiful moment because we 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 kind of verged into a very collaborative exchange during the recording of the podcast and so we're now we're working together to see see what that might turn into as far as like maybe a, a workshop on on how narrative impacts your facilitation and how you can use mm, the power right. of narrative to think about how you might design your, your workshop. And we are, we, we already, we taught a module in our advanced facilitation workshop around, you know, using different merit narrative structures to, to map out your, your agenda. And so, mm-hmm. and that was, that was in collaboration with a partner of ours, Daniel Stillman, who's really fantastic. And so I, the power of narrative is, is pretty phenomenal and, and shouldn't be understated. You know, the 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 one thing I will say is we see a massive difference in the resilience of uh, this work when teams think about the message that they're going to send to the broader organization, and mm-hmm. if we if we don't do that, there's a few risks. One is if we if we run into someone who wasn't in the design sprint. So the I first discovered this when. I was talking with a CEO who had hired me, but wasn't part of the design sprint. He had delegated the, the decider role, and you know he had a he had a team that he was really interested in working on this work. and And about a I don't know a couple of weeks after the design sprint, I was having a, a follow up call and coaching session, and I asked him um, how how things went, and had he, had he heard anything from the team, and he was like. Telling me the story about how he ran into the decider, and she she said, "Yeah, it was a ton of fun," and and I thought, "Wow, that was that's what that's what he got when he inquired at the <laughs> water cooler," and it's right. and it's not surprising because you know this work where we've we, we're we're relying on the power of the child's mind. We really want to tap into some of that kind of fearless curiosity. And this right. playful energy that can be so productive, 
And, and so if you haven't prepared, that's, you're going to go to an emotional spot. And so what we're really saying is just reserve some time to have that conversation so we know mm-hmm. that the outcomes are, are codified and we're, we're kind of somewhat rehearsed, not to the point that we're trying to be deceitful, but we just want to make sure you, you wouldn't get up in front of a, of, of a group of 200, 500 people without being a little bit rehearsed in what you're going to say, right? And right. I think if we, if we treat this work the same, it can, it can be very powerful. The, the other reason is just when you're stopped in your tracks and don't quite know what to say, there, the, other, the other kind of fatal issue here is if we all leave the meeting and we all take slightly different observations with us, when, when we discuss with uh, other people in the organization, they'll hear different things. And if you can imagine, like, if you hear different things from a group, it probably doesn't make you very confident in their ability to execute. And so it, it really will undermine the resilience of your efforts. And so just having some alignment around the, the content and the, the conclusions and the next steps is super critical. And you know, I also, if the bonus credit, if you can not only think about the, the, the topics that are important to discuss and, and share out and talk about post-workshop or post-meeting, but also think about the audiences because your, your, your message might differ slightly based on what, what, they're, what mm-hmm. they're concerned about. That last piece actually was something I wanted to ask you about because, you know, you have the, you have the wonder of the child's mind with the responsibility of an adult's life kind of in these, these projects because it does come down to, as your book talks about, implementation. And what that looks like might be different for different groups. And so this starts to get into the messaging and the branding and the marketing of the change because, you know, different groups might look at this idea or this shift or this new thing differently. But at the end of the day, however they get there, as long as they're arriving to the same spot, you know, does it, does it really matter? I was working on a project with, you know, trying to get doctors to, to code their documentation in ways that would increase the hospital's reimbursement. It wasn't fraud, but the doctors just didn't have time, didn't think it was important to put down all the details of the procedure. And the way that really good professionals would get them to do that, they would say something like, you know, administration really doesn't appreciate how good of a doctor you are. And they really don't understand the complexity of cases that you manage and handle. And the way we can get them to really understand the value you bring is to make sure your documentation has everything in it as as much as possible. And the doctors would be like, yeah, that's right. It wasn't, you know, we need to increase the, the reimbursement for the hospital that wasn't going to get them there. What was going to get them there was what mattered to them. So it was the same program, documentation improvement program, but a different message that allowed people to converge to the same space. I love that. And you know, I think that that story it's pretty incredible because it that to me is true design. You know, we 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 created conditions and we put in place criteria so that we got the desired outcome right and 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 you know you talked about what matters to them that that's what i was talking about earlier when i mentioned the shared values you know right. we had to understand where what we have in common or what about this this thing that we're trying to do is really pulling the strings for you I and mean, how how you can come in you know greg in his cascades book talks about you know for the movements to work you have to have uh, loosely coupled disparate nodes united by a shared purpose 
And, and sometimes that shared purpose is not um, always clear. And so that requires some hard work. And this is what I was talking about at the beginning of meetings and workshops to really spend some time getting to that, that doing that purpose work and, and finding out what motivates people. And so if you're doing that work and, you know, you realize that, wow, that they don't really care about this piece, but they really, really care about this. Then you can design that, um, that interaction or that exchange um, with, with, with that kind of core principle in mind. And, uh, you know, there's this, this really interesting tool that we used at the beginning when the coronavirus stuff started to first become a real concern in the U.S. And it was right before South by Southwest got canceled. And South by and Capital Factory, a local accelerator, had us come in and run a, a workshop to explore how we might change our behaviors to make South by more safe. Oddly enough, or I guess not that surprising at this point, the mayor's announcement that South by would be canceled happened right in the middle of the workshop. So you can imagine we've got a room full of people that are kind of exploring this like really important conversation and uh, the, you know, the oxygen just gets sucked out of the room. It was like the most, like, it was just the strangest phenomenon for me as a facilitator. It was like I had a high, highly energized room, just there to figure it out, and then just totally deflated. And it was like, like a switch just got flipped, right? <laughs> and, but the thing we were doing was something called improv prototyping. This is where we present a challenge, and, and we, in and, and groups of three, kind of act out the how we might behave based on that challenge. And so like one of the prompts was, Someone's going to act out a unsafe sneeze, <laughs> and then someone else is going to react to that unsafe sneeze. So they're going to be improv. It's uh, both they're improving really. Just one person's improving the bad behavior, and someone else is improving the good behavior. And then the third person is an observer. And so after after the session, after the short session, it's only like maybe five minutes. Then. Then, then they do, we do a debrief, and and I would say you know we, we were talking about critical components of facilitation, and I was talking about starting with the purpose and you know making sure that that we understand where those shared values might exist, and and, and that we get really resilient on, on the goals and objectives. Well, the debriefs are equally important because if we the worst is improv or, or icebreakers and, and warm ups. If you do those things. And you can't answer the question, why don't we just do that? Yeah. <laughs> and you need to ask exactly. yourself. In fact, I usually will say, if you can't ask that question to the room and have a really pithy conversation, then you need to ask yourself, why don't we just do that? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the debrief is kind of baked into a lot of these liberating structures because it's like one of their core principles. But the, the improv prototyping is really cool because you get to practice you're basically designing on the fly. You're reacting to this thing and, and you know, watching your behavior. And then in the debrief, we can talk about what behaviors we want to emulate and which ones we want to like um, avoid in the future. And then we can, then we can try it again. So not only are we designing on the fly, but we're also rehearsing and giving people that motor memory of, or of what it's like to feel like telling someone you should really cover that cough because it's not right. socially acceptable to like admonish people in public, mm. but it's like if if people are out there doing those things, it's not great for society. And how how can we how can we shift those behaviors so that so that we can stand up and and, and help and help shape things for the better? Mm. Maybe you can do that next with a regional emphasis. Okay, now you're a New Yorker. 
observing this unsafe sleeves. Now you are from Boston. Now you're from the South. We did. We talked about that, you know, the, this notion of like, because especially with South by being such an international conference, it's right. like, you know, what are, what are some of these social norms that people are bringing in that we need to think about and account for? It, that, led, that was a very fascinating conversation. And, you know, honestly, uh, people ask me what I like the most about the work that I do. It's, it's when, when, the, when the conversation goes there. Right. When someone brings up something that's like, wow, that is a bit of a wicked question and there's no right or wrong answer. And we're going to, we're going to all have a, have a real meaty conversation. And man, I don't just in that moment, it's like, I feel like the room lights up and it's a, it's a, it's an amazing place to be. Hmm. That's a, that sounds super fun. Actually. I want, I want to go try this improv prototyping thing now too. And I think that's great too. I mean, that, that really does a great job of illustrating why debriefing is such an important piece that you don't often see enough, I think, you know, in, in certainly in like organizational meetings in general, where like I think facilitation sessions like lend themselves better to, to debriefs. And I think that's, it's really powerful and great to hear like that's such an important piece um, of your own practice and in, in that you advocate for others. And, and I, you know, Gary and I would certainly agree with that too. But it's so interesting too, how oftentimes, you know, we, you talk to a colleague or a friend that they're just in some, you know, random meeting at work, or even if they get together, like to brainstorm an idea, there's like not a huge amount of emphasis on the debrief side. I think that's such an important piece that's like on one level kind of simple. And, and part of it is, as you just said, they, can you answer the question of why did we do this? Right. And if you can't answer that in a, you know, in, in two sentences, then it is an important piece to then make your, you know, kind of pause and say, okay, well, what, you know, why can't we answer that question? You know, and so much of this too, it seems like a lot of it in a broad sense is about providing the space for these extra pieces of reflection, right? And like being and setting kind of intention, right? For the practice, both in terms of like, why are we here together and, and what do you bring? What do I bring? And then at the end of the, at the end of it, kind of like, what did we do this for? You know, what would have come out of this with? And so to me too, it's, it's almost like we're, we're kind of melding a bit of mindfulness throughout this process too, right? Instead of just having the idea of like, it's, it's almost funny, it's kind of like, you know, the idea of a sprint feels like, you know, quick, fast, and, and quite actions, but then it's like, you don't often think about then mindfulness around and through that. But that's kind of what, what I'm hearing that this process is. It's, it's a mix of like, you know, Zen meditation <laughs> and running really <laughs> fast, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I always talk about how the sprint requires you to slow down so you can move fast. And mm. The results are really fast, but man, when you're in, when you're in the moment, it's like a lot of times we're we're going to have a, a, a long conversation about something we usually don't we don't reserve time for. But getting those things out of the way sets up the dominoes where everything can kind of can move a bit faster. And it's okay. funny, some some it's like I would say some of the things that people gloss over, and never do, or spend very little time on. We're going <clears> to <throat> we're going to spend a lot of time on. Mm. Yeah, and. To some of the things that people belabor and and just like drag out and stall out, those are the things we're going to move really fast on. You know, mm-hmm. we're going to do a prototype in one day. We're not going to hem and haw around what it could be, what it should be. We're just going to put it together, make it believable, and then go learn some stuff. And you know, to Gary's comment earlier, it's like you know, this looking at the broader implications. I've seen people do kind of this kind of almost like a um, wagon wheel type of approach, where it's like let's do slices or spokes, and 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 kind of then zoom out and look at the findings and how they all stitch together. So because it's not about like doing this one tiny test is not going to give you the whole picture, but if you do enough core samples, you can get 
um, uh, understanding of what's going on without cutting the whole tree down. Mm. <laughs> More sustainable that way too, I hope, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that part of the analogy works as well, but hey, let's just, <laughs> why not? <laughs> why not? Yeah. You know, we're an information tree. I hope it can, can survive a little longer <laughs> if we just cut out a piece of it. That's true. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I, I think that this has been an awesome conversation. Yeah. You know, it, it's been such a, it's been a, it's been a journey, right? This is our, our podcast user journey, right? <laughs> Across. The- <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. You know, it's like, I didn't, I think we started off and you're like, well, we're, we're not recording. And then at some point I'm just like, I'm pretty sure we must be recording because we're like, no, we haven't started yet. Should I hit that recording? Yeah, that sounds good. Let's go. Okay, let's go. So, Douglas Ferguson, hi, welcome to Experience by Design. I actually, I actually started recording, but I think that, like with most of what we do, right, there is the idea of the 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 effort behind the effortless effortlessness of the of the work, right? And facilitation should look easy because people who are trained professionals at it make it look easy. And that the hard work actually is when you realize that um, now we got to do something with what we facilitated and actually bring it, bring it forward. But, you know, hopefully the front, the foundation, the groundwork laid in the sprint session is the, the, are the, are the building blocks for the sustainable movement. Like our, like our core tree. Yes. I, I couldn't have said it better. Yeah, well, Douglas, thanks so much for joining us uh, on the podcast today. This has been super exciting. And and so just as a final wrap up, you know, we want to say like, yeah, um, your book is great. Beyond the Prototype is, is an amazing book. And it's, it's a great it chock is. full of like awesome ideas of facilitation and techniques. I, I like the, you know, I'm now inspired to go try out the, the RACI chart to like kind of understand people's, you know, who's responsible and, and accountable and, and you know, who's going to get deliverables and who's, who needs to be informed and, and such like that. For project work, but then so where can where can the good people find you if they want to want to check out your work, Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever, whatever, whatever you prefer to get get found by. Yeah, well, all the social handles are linked from voltagecontrol.com. So that's that's a great place to go and start. Mm-hmm. I'm very active on LinkedIn. If you are interested in connecting there, I love to connect to new people. And of course, Beyond the Prototype can be found at beyondtheprototype.com. And so many URLs, but I got one more. Start Within, my new book just came out, startwithin.com. Oh, oh cool. And, Start uh, Within. Yeah, really, really excited about, about that. That's at startwithin.com. And it was such a pleasure chatting with you all today. Both of you are really fun to talk to. And man, I had a blast. Cool. Thanks so much. Thanks, yeah. All right. Once again, many thanks to Douglas Ferguson for joining us on the podcast today. His new book is called Beyond the Prototype, and his newer book is called Start Within. We'll have links to both those in the show notes, as well as all the other resources that we talked about in today's episode. Uh, so it's been super fun to learn about the ideas of getting beyond the prototype itself and the power of facilitation and systems thinking, as well as bringing in that you know that mix of the childlike wonder and playful energy to just sort of rethinking and approaching problems in new ways. So again, many thanks to Douglas once more. And if you want to support this show, you can check us out at glow.fm slash experience by design, where you can give one, two, three, five dollars a month, uh, whatever it might be within your wheelhouse. And it really goes a long way to helping us defray web costs as well as working on production. Experience by Design is brought to you by Missing Link Studios, a participatory research and design collaborative and media house that uses design thinking and the social sciences to help change makers and social impact organizations define and tell their stories better. 
So whether you're an individual or an organization, mastering your own story, style, and messaging is essential for everything from aligning business goals to understanding your customers, sharing needed information, or just making people feel something. So Missing Link would love to partner with you. We offer design thinking facilitation, market research, media production and concepting, strategy, and more. Shoot me a message at adam at missinglink.studio. And of course, continue to listen to Experience by Design and This Anthro Life. It's been a pleasure as always. This is your host, Adam Gamwell, and we will see you next time.